Welcome to Practical Christian Living. I think that the power of prayer is incredible. I believe that when you pray for your children, when you pray for your parents, when you pray for the people you work with, when you pray for the people you love, when you pray for the person that annoys you the most in life, that God intervenes in their life because you pray. We will probably never know completely just how powerful our prayer is until we get to heaven. Because there are many circumstances and destinies in this life that are changed daily because we stop and take the time to pray. With our study titled, The Prayer Perspective, out of 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 15, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, we want to thank you. Lord, we are blessed. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our way. And we do want to know how you want us to live every day. We want us to know what is the best conditions for us to live in so that we can be effective in the warfare that you have called us to. We are in the middle of a spiritual battle over souls that are perishing. And we want to live our lives in such a way that people around us can see Christ in us, the hope of glory. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today is The Prayer Perspective, and the entire passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is about us speaking to God about men. It could be said that chapter 1 of the book of 1 Timothy is about us speaking to men about God, making sure that we have a true doctrine, staying faithful to that. You remember that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. Paul, an older pastor, we're going to say in his 60s somewhere, writing to a younger man, not necessarily really young at this point. Timothy's somewhere in his 40s now, as he is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul tells him in chapter 1, stay there. No doubt Timothy wanted to go to some of the other churches in the regions, make sure that they were doing what is correct, minister to them and pastor to them. But Paul says, you need to stay in Ephesus. You need to tell them to stay true to the doctrines that are there and talk to them about me. But in chapter 2, he says, and I need you to talk to God about men, prayer. I need you to call out to God for the sake of people. I want to ask you this question in the beginning of our study. Do you believe that your prayers make a difference in the lives of people you are praying for? Now that might be, you think, would be a simple uh, answer to that question. That You would say, for sure. I believe that we pray for people and God moves on behalf of our prayers. But you realize there's a whole group of Christians out there who believe that you can't change anything. That God predestines people and then that your prayers don't make a difference. But listen, God certainly predestines people, right? But he does that through his foreknowledge. And it says that, whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And this group of people, they so much don't want to, to believe that, that they're willing to deny the foreknowledge of God. They'll even say, God doesn't know the future, so how can he predestine people? Listen, the God of the Bible knows the future. The Bible says that God said, I'm the one who can tell the beginning from the end. I'll tell you before things happen that they're going to happen so you will know that it is me. And God uses his foreknowledge to choose and work and move in people's lives. And you, like Timothy, have been called by God to, to wage good warfare. 
We live in a whole new time with a whole new generation that has been placed in our lives. You interact with people in your homes, in your work, in your school, wherever you are and however God is using you, you are to wage good warfare because souls hang in the balance. And how you live makes a difference. What you share in Christ makes a difference. And praying for the people around you makes a difference. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher in the late 1800s over in Europe. He had built a church called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It had 5,000 seats. This is in the late 1800s. Mega churches, uh, they weren't known in their day. Today, there are many churches that reach into 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12,000 people. But in their day, mega churches weren't very common. He was kind of like the first one. And um, spoke 10 times a week at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. In Charles Spurgeon's lifetime, he spoke to 10 million people. We're not talking about on the internet. We're not talking about TV. We're talking about 10 million people face to face. Now, a crowd of a large people and him speaking to them, but over 10 million people. There's a group of students, the story's told, that went to go see him one night. They wanted to get there early because Oftentimes, you couldn't get in. It was so crowded, you couldn't make it in. They wanted to get there early, and they wanted to see the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It was an incredibly impressive facility for their day. So they got there earlier, and an older man met them there, who they just took to be a janitor, and he asked them if he could help them, and they said, we kind of wanted to see the place, and he said, I'll show you, and he began to show them around. And after he goes done, completed showing them the upstairs, the downstairs, the whole thing, he said, um, do you guys want to see what fuels the church? And the story goes that the students kind of thought to themselves, I don't really want to see the furnace room. Not really too impressed by that. But uh, they said, all right. And so he took them around back behind the stage. And he opened up a door and there was a prayer room there that had been built in. Thought beforehand that they wanted a prayer room. And inside was 25 to 30 people praying for the service that was going to take place in a couple of hours. And Charles Spurgeon who was the guy that was showing them. And you guys knew that was coming, didn't you? Charles Spurgeon had just walked out and walked out front and ran into these guys. And instead of saying to them, hi, I'm Charles Spurgeon, he just simply said, can I help you guys? Then began to show them around. They had no clue it was him. But Charles Spurgeon said to them, what happens out there tonight starts here. This is the fuel or the fire for what God does in all of our services. A quote from Charles Spurgeon, he said, I would re rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. And I think he's on to something. I think that the power of prayer is incredible. I believe that when you pray for your children, when you pray for your parents, when you pray for the people you work with, when you pray for the people you love, when you pray for the person that annoys you the most in life, that God intervenes in their life because you pray. There's all kinds of teaching on prayer today that says prayer isn't really about you getting God to do something in someone's life. Prayer is about you changing. But I will disagree with that. I will disagree with that to the day that I die. Prayer changes destinies. Prayer changes people's lives. And you reach out into the spiritual realm. You and I are not some kind of child coming alongside of God and going, God, can I, can I be involved? Uh, the analogy's been used that, that we're like a five-year-old going out into the garage to help their dad. And the dad sees their five-year-old, and I did this with my kids, and the five-year-old said, can I help? You ever had that happen, guys? And you go, oh, no. It's going to take a lot longer. And 
So then the five, you say, yeah, take the screwdriver and turn the screw in. And so you're there. No, like, no, you got to put it in the slot. You, you got to kind of, no, that's the wrong way. You got to, no, yeah, you got to do, and then you kind of do it for him. And you go, there you go. Good job, Johnny. You, you help, Daddy. Let's go tell Mommy we fixed the car. So little Johnny walks in and goes, I fixed the car. And so they use that analogy to say, that's us. We're like, but God's doing everything and what we do doesn't matter, but God allows us like a little kid to be involved. You know, that's, that's not the picture that the Bible paints of what you and I do for the kingdom of God. The Bible says that we are soldiers in the middle of a battle, that lives hang in the balance, and that God trains us and empowers us and fills us with the Spirit so that God can move in the lives of people and listen lives hang in the balance of what you do. And if you are living for yourself and if you are just seeking your own life and you're consumed with yourself, then people are on their way to hell and their destinies could be changed if you get serious about the warfare that you have been called to. Uh, Ephesians 5 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts in heavenly places. And then it says that we're to put on the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, and anything else I forgot. You put it on, and then you stand. What's the next thing it says? Stand there for somebody praying, right? You, you get ready for battle. And then you stand and you pray because prayer is spiritual warfare and prayer makes a difference. So Paul at the end of verse one, I mean, excuse me, in the end of chapter one says, wage a good warfare. And then the beginning of chapter two says, pray for all men because there is a power in praying for people because lives are changed when we call out to God for individuals. And so chapter 2, verse 1, this whole chapter is on prayer, proper prayer, the position that we take in prayer. Not whether or not we kneel or stand, but where we are being right with God and how we live our lives while we're praying. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore I exhort first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. He says, first of all, therefore, you guys would pray, supplications, intercessions, um, giving of thanks uh, for all men. Supplications is asking. He wants us to ask him. That's what supplications are. Again, I've heard people say about prayer, we should never ask God for anything, but you should pray for me and I should pray for you. Well, that's a very nice thing to say, but uh, it's unbiblical. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. Jesus said, ask, knock, and seek. Ask and you will receive. Knock and it will be open. Seek and you will find. Do you think he's lying? Do you think he's saying, I just want you guys to go through the motions? Doesn't really matter if you ask. Doesn't really matter if you knock. Doesn't really matter if you seek. It makes a radical difference when we seek, when we ask, when we knock. And then he says intercession. Prayer, which is in general, prayer is thanksgiving to him, lifting things up to God, uh, exalting his name, worship, supplications. It's a whole picture. And then he says intercession. Standing in the gap for someone. That when I stand in the gap for my son, God moves on behalf of my son because I'm standing in the gap. When you stand in the gap for those around you, 
that God moves on behalf because you are interceding, because you are standing in the gap. Do you know we have someone in the gap for us right now? You know that the Bible says that Jesus is our intercessor. He stands and prays for us. And so the things happen in our lives because Jesus is praying for us. And things happen in the lives of people around you because you're praying for them. So he says, I want men everywhere to pray. He says, for all men. And the word all men there means all men. Then he gives us a category. For kings and all who are in authority. For uh, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful peaceable life in godliness and reverence for kings and those in authority. Let's go in a time machine. I wish I had some time machine music that could play right now. And then now here we are and we're in Rome. Everybody's looking at us weird because we have these clothes on. Everybody's walking around in their robes and their things that they have in Rome. Or let's actually go back even to Ephesus. That's where this letter, Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. Let's go back to, to 65 AD in Ephesus. And we're in this, the city square. And the men are there, because the women are out doing all the work. The, the men are there, and they're talking about politics. They're talking about the new emperor in Rome. And the new emperor is a guy by the name of Nero. And Nero was about the creepiest guy you could be. Nero was extravagant. Nero was a pedophile. Nero dipped Christians in oil, lit them on fire to light up his gardens. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. And if that really isn't a, uh, an actual event in history, which some believe it's not, it's at least his, his mindset. It's the kind of guy that he was. He was the guy to take glee in destruction that took place when he was supposed to be in a position of authority. God put people in positions of kings and in authority so they could care for the common people. And Nero didn't care. Paul, who says pray for kings, would eventually be beheaded by Nero. And when he says pray for kings, he's talking about Nero. Why? Because he says we've got to live a quiet and peaceable life. So why don't you, he's saying to the church at Ephesus, pray for the kings and all those who are in authority because they make a difference in the way you live. Call out to God for them. Pray that they would get saved. Pray for those who are in authority over you. I want to challenge you. If you are one that is just a critic of the president, if you are one that just tears him down, if you are the one that just has been caught up in a lot of the talk radio, okay, and I'm not saying that that's bad, I'm just saying, if you're one that's gotten so caught up in this that you are just, you know, beside yourself, then, and, you know, you sound like Rush Limbaugh all the time. You've gotten so caught up in it. I challenge you to pray for the President of the United States every day. And don't pray that bad things happen to him. Pray that good things happen to him. Pray that he is blessed. Pray that God honors him. Pray that God would help him to make good, solid decisions for our nation. Because we need it. Because it affects the way we live. And we want to live in an environment until Jesus comes back that is the most productive for the kingdom of God. All right? I don't know what I was thinking in trying to go over this whole chapter together but uh, at one time, but amen. And I'm glad you guys feel that way because... I really believe that's what God wants from us. I, I think it's a pretty disgusting thing to God when we just get caught up in that stuff. I really do. God wants us to be calling out for those that are in authority. Um, boy, could you imagine what might have been done over the last three and a half years had the church really been behind him in prayer? 
Because prayer changes destinies. Prayer changes things. All right, let's move on, though. Um, verse uh, 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And our Savior. It's good and acceptable that we pray for rulers and kings. It's good and acceptable that we live a quiet and peaceable life. You may want to make a lot of noise. You may want to be used by God in great ways. God may use you in great ways. But, but the way that happens is by being faithful in the little things. As you're faithful in the little things, God opens up doors. We live a quiet and peaceable life, and this is acceptable. And it's, it's, it's something that is good in the sight of God, who desires that all men would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants all people saved. And I realize on, on Wednesday night, for those of you guys that were here, I got up on my soapbox about Reformed theology. I stayed on it for a while. Uh, Reformed theology teaches that God doesn't want all people saved. They got a problem with this verse. They say, well, this all doesn't mean all. They say, well, you know, it says that all of Jerusalem was troubled with King Herod, and it doesn't mean all of Jerusalem was troubled with him because a three-year-old in the backyard wasn't troubled with Herod. So all doesn't always mean all. But God desires all to be saved. They say that's only the elect to be saved, but only the elect is a small amount because narrow is the way that leads to life and broad is the way that leads to destruction. So now he says all when he's talking about a little bit. God desires all people to be saved. God wants everyone to come to Christ. And there's not a person on the face of this earth that if they didn't repent and call out upon God could not be saved. And Romans 9, which they try to point to that says that God doesn't want some people to be saved, is talking about the Gentiles coming to faith and the Jews being grafted back into the vine. It's important to read things in context. And God isn't going to put his foreknowledge aside, is he? We talked about that already, right, in this message? I don't know. They're all blurring together to me. It's all one big giant message all morning. God's not going to put his foreknowledge aside. God desires that all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if you've got to go, well, my theology tells me that that's not what that verse means, that tells me your theology ought to change. Because theology is men putting a system together to make sense of the Bible. And if the Bible says one thing and your theology says something else, tell me what should be changed. Should you try to change the Bible? That's not what the Bible says. Or should you change your theology? It's better to take the Bible for what it says. Verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. All of this prayer is connected to Jesus being the mediator and people getting saved. He gave his life as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Paul says, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I love that he puts preacher first over apostle. I am speaking the truth, truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. What's the whole context? It's prayer. It's, it's the context is salvation. God desires everybody to get saved. And, and I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands and pray. Now, what's the lifting up holy hands thing? When I was a kid, my, my mother had praying hands all around the house. You guys have them around your house? They're praying hands that were like this, or like that. They're sitting on our coffee table like that, or like that. That's what that, that, those were the praying hands. When I was a kid, my mom taught me to kneel at the bed and put my hands together, the praying hands, and I said, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. I said it about that fast every night. <laughs> it wasn't until I was about 14 or 15 that I realized I was praying I wouldn't die every night. Lord, you know, <laughs> kind of a little disturbing for a child to be praying that particular prayer. 
But I don't know if that's what it means. I think that what he's saying is lifting up holy hands. You got to get yourself again into that whole, the whole Jewish culture. Paul's Jewish, very Jewish, okay? He's been a Pharisee. He's been a scribe. And, and, and uh, the Jewish culture in Paul's day, even the Jewish culture in our day, there's a lot of hands go on. And when you're passionate about something, you use your hands. And when someone cuts you off in a car, you use your hands. What? What? You idiot. You got in my way. I think what God is saying is, Hey, lift up holy hands. Let's be passionate. God, save my children. God, save my parents. Lord, intervene. Because if you don't intervene, what's going to happen to my kids? If you don't intervene, they're lost. They're perishing. He says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. That's what he wants from us. That's effective prayer. Effective prayer is fervent prayer. Effective prayer is holy. And you can be holy by calling out to Jesus today and asking him to forgive your sins. You might say, my prayers aren't going to be very effective because I'm not a holy man. You can be in a moment. You can be if you confess your sins because he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And at the moment that you pray that prayer and begin to pray for your children, you're no different than a guy, if it were possible, who has not sinned in the last 10 years. You might think that his prayers would be more powerful because he's been a good guy for 10 years and you've been a good guy for 10 seconds. But in the spiritual world, you both stand the same. This guy doesn't even exist. He never will exist, okay? Because no one's going to be perfect for 10 years, right? But if there was, you would both stand before the, the throne of God calling out upon his name the same so that every man in here can call out to God for the sake of his children. You can lift up holy hands and plead with God for your family and your home and the lost. Paul says, that's what I want. Men everywhere to lift up holy hands. And likewise, the women. He wants you ladies to do the same. And so now we enter into what is the most controversial passage in the entire Bible. Paul gets us in so much trouble here. This passage is, has gotten so many pastors in trouble. I think a few have gotten lynched because of this passage. I think some ladies in the church all got together and said, get a rope. Let's get that guy. Can't believe he said this. This has been so misunderstood and there have been guys that have used it to try to say to the women in their lives, I, I'm control over you. You do what I say because I'm the man of the home and you listen to me. Which is not what he was wanting to say at all. Not here or not in the letter to the church of Ephesus. In the letter to the church of Ephesus, he says to the women, be submissive unto your husbands. And then he says, and husbands... Die for your wives. Lay down your lives for them, even as Christ laid down his life for the church. And when the Bible says women be submissive, we go, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> what do you mean be submissive to my husband? I'm not a dog to be submissive. But you realize when you keep reading that the husband's got the harder part because he lays down his life for his wife. And let's just, let's just think about culture. Let's think about our culture, first of all. Where have we come from? Let's think about women and what women have fought for over the last hundred years. That is our culture. Let's think about women fighting for the vote. Let's think about women fighting for equality in the workplace. Let's think about women fighting for equality when it comes to wages. And these have been fights. These have been very real fights in our culture. And when we read this passage, it's very hard for us to take the glasses of our culture off and realize that, was, that if Paul were writing in our culture, he would say it differently. 
but he's writing in their culture. And in their culture, there was something else that was going on. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.